You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. King David. There's no question that David is one of Scripture's more important people. We're inspired by his youthful courage to fight Goliath. Like, we know that story, right? We, if we know his story of his beautiful friendship with Jonathan, we're inspired by that kind of commitment to a friend. We find ourselves, if not all of us, most of us inspired by his worshipful poetry and his songs that we call the Psalms. And if we remember the story, we can find inspiration in his unbelievable patience and self-restraint under wicked King Saul. And it's almost hard to imagine when you think about King David that this man spoken so highly of in more than half the books of the Bible would be so guilty of breaking half of God's commandments. Like in one situation, for that matter. Like David coveted Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. He effectively stole her from Uriah. He lied to him, and he eventually had him murdered. And when the prophet Nathan comes to confront David for his depravity, you read in the story where David awakens to a self-deception and immediately does repent, confesses his sin, and then, of course, accepts the consequences of his sins uh, and the lives he destroyed. It's King David. But then I think about Elijah the prophet. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. He had so many extraordinary and miraculous experiences, it would be easy to think that he would have this unshakable faith if you know anything about Elijah the prophet. I mean, the scriptures tell us that his prayers were what caused it not to rain for three years. That's impressive. I wished he would pray a little bit now. Um, you know, just for like three weeks would be good. You know, that there's a story where God... Uh, feeds him by sending ravens or birds with food. So he sees that. One time he saw God turn uh, an ordinary jar of flour and an ordinary jug of oil into a limitless supply. Like he saw that. One time he saw God raise a foreign widow's son from the dead. Now, God raising a foreign widow's son from the dead is, is, is extraordinary. God raising a son from the dead is extraordinary enough, but a foreign widow's son in his culture was, was even more extraordinary. Right? Like, and if that's not enough, Elijah found himself in this kind of showdown between himself and 450 prophets of Baal, right? Like who could, who could do the most awesome work and miracle and whose God was legit? And so like 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah, like in the octagon of, you know, like, and there they are and, and fire comes down and licks up everything and he wins. Like he calls down fire from heaven and God, God answers that call and, and he wins the showdown. But then Elijah finds himself in another situation where he sees God at work. When the Baal worshipers anger King Ahab and King Ahab's wife Jezebel is so angry as well that she vows to have Elijah kill. But at this point, Elijah just couldn't bear it. He's had enough. And if you remember the story, Elijah bows underneath the pressure of being this high-profile prophet gets up and escapes into the wilderness and throws himself a serious, serious pity party. Like major depression here and hopelessness. And yet God meets him there 
in his brokenness and depression, even though Elijah is complaining now that he's the only one who really loves God, and God feeds him, gives him a nap, and after a little while answers his complaints and encourages Elijah through the whisper. You'd think that Elijah would have this unshakable faith given everything he's seen. You would think King David would have slowed his roll on some of the sins that he was going to commit, particularly the, the, the really, quote, bad ones. But that's not all. Like, the Hebrew Scripture is full of, like, messed up people. So, so, for example, Abraham was the forefather of our faith. He let other men walk off with his wife on two different occasions. They needed a marriage conference. Like there's Sarah, right? Abraham's wife who let her husband sleep with another woman and he hated her for it. Then he hated him for it. There's Lot who lost his father early in life, had a serious problem with choosing good friends, right? Like there's Isaac who was nearly killed by his daddy, had to seriously have daddy issues, right? And then talked his wife into concealing their marriage. There's Rebecca who turns out to be a rather manipulative wife. There's Jacob who is pretty much a pathological liar. There's Reuben, the pride and firstborn of Jacob, who slept with his father's concubine. That was that, like, that whole thing's messed up, right? There's Moses, who committed murder and had a very serious, very serious problem with his temper throughout his entire life, right? There's Aaron, who watched God triumph over Pharaoh and then formed a gigantic idol during an apparent episode of colossal amnesia, right? Like there's Miriam, the songwriter, the sister of Moses, who had sibling jealousy and agreed for power. There's Samson, who was hopelessly in love with a disloyal wife, and it ended up costing his life. There's Saul, the first and powerful king of Israel, who was apparently a psychotic with manic bursts of anger, episodes of deep depression, and traces of paranoia, and he eventually took his own life. There's Solomon, King David's son, who is called, and this is crazy, he's called the wisest man in the world, but was arguably the world's greatest womanizer and pleasure seeker, with a lifetime filled with materialistic pursuits, 700 wives, and 300 concubines. Heroes of the faith. Like, we don't have time to go through any more of those guys and gals. So I figure we go to the New Testament. So there's other like people, right? But there's these obscure people like John Mark. Not John. Not Mark. John Mark. <laughs> Right? Like, I know somebody like, wait a minute. No, John Mark. John Mark's the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas, you may remember, is one of the Apostle Paul's closest friends and missionary companions. John Mark's family was an important group of people in the early church. That's important to know. So much so that when Peter was miraculously freed from prison, he knows that the believers would be found gathering at the home of John Mark's family. Right? So due to John Mark's family significance in the movement of Christianity and his relationship to Barnabas, the Apostle Paul and his missionary companion Barnabas pick John Mark, they pick him to go with them on mission trips, right? To take on the missionary journey. So they pick him up on the way back from a mission trip to Jerusalem and take him to Antioch. Now from there, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Cyrus, bringing John Mark along with them as an assistant. So now John Mark's an assistant on the journey with Paul and Barnabas. has pretty good status. But somewhere along the way, as the journey grows difficult and as the journey grows dangerous, John Mark decides he's had enough. And so after sailing to a place called Perga, the book of Acts tells us almost in a very lackadaisical way that John Mark abandons them. He just bails. 
and leaves them returning for Jerusalem. When the, tough, when the going got tough, John Mark got going. Now, we don't know exactly why John Mark abandoned them, but we do know that Barnabas and Paul, like that Paul especially saw it as extraordinarily dishonorable. So when Barnabas later suggests to Paul that they should go get John Mark, Paul refuses. The disagreement gets so heavy between Paul and Barnabas that they decide to call their extraordinary partnership quits. These two dear friends and brothers who had shared multiple mission journeys together become so divided over John Mark that they will no longer work together. Many years later, when Paul's sitting in prison awaiting trial, he writes a letter to the church at Colossae. And he not only tells them that John Mark is with him and has been a great comfort to him at this point, but also tells the church in Colossae that they're to welcome John Mark if he shows up. I mean, this kid had sorely disappointed Paul and now became a man who brought Paul comfort. It was John Mark's decisions and personality that caused division between two of the greatest movement makers in Christianity. Speaking of that, there's Paul, right? We know Paul's story. Paul, before he became the writer of most of the New Testament books, was Saul of Tarsus, what we would call a terrorist to the church. And not only was he present when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, but Paul gave the orders for that to be done. And from there, Luke, in his gospel, tells us that Saul made it his business to destroy the church. He would go door to door in Jerusalem looking for people who followed Jesus so he could throw them in prison. And then, this was clever, then he would take the correspondence written from the Christians in prison to other Christians and find the Christians' addresses and where they lived and try to go get them too. On his way, along the road, at some point in his journey, he has an encounter with the resurrected Christ on the rest of history, right? Of course, then there's Peter. We know Peter. Peter's loud and impulsive. Peter's the biggest personality in any room. It's no wonder why he would join James and John as one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, he was the only disciple willing to actually try to walk on water when Jesus was walking on water. Like, at least he gave it a good old effort, right? And he was also the first to confess that Jesus Christ was the Messianic or the Messiah King and Son of God. And we know the story. There's one time where Jesus predicts that Peter's going to uh, deny him, right? And Peter proudly, if you read the story, proudly disagrees with Jesus. But that very night after Jesus is arrested, someone confronts Peter in the courtyard of the Jewish courthouse and accuses him of being a follower of Christ. And just as Jesus predicted, Peter denies him, not once, not twice, but how many? Three times. And on the third time, he curses his accusers. When he realizes what he's done, his heart breaks. So now why do I share all of this with us? Why remind us that the scriptures are filled with people who lied, cheated, murdered, committed adultery, fell into the traps of lust and materialism, in weak moments worshipped idols, bailed on others when times got hard, were self-centered through pity parties, experienced massive falls from the Tower of Pride, and I could go on. Why, why share all of that 
with us. Why remind us of all these imperfect and terribly sinful people? Well, I could, I could talk about how all this reminds us that God is honest in the way he depicts the human condition. I could talk about that. I could talk about how God, if he is willing to, if he's unwilling to misrepresent humanity in his divine sacred story, then we actually can let go of the temptation of misrepresenting ourselves to others. I could talk about that. I could talk about how we can be free from the pressure that we often put on ourselves to mask our spirituality or lack thereof. I could even talk about how the gospel invites us to come out of hiding and live into the light. I could talk about that, but I won't. So why remind us of all these imperfect and terribly sinful people? I guess I could talk about how sin and willful disobedience to God has real consequences. We could spend time talking about how pain and brokenness and loss and death-dealing realities are tied to the sinfulness and disobedience of a world at, of, of a world in rebellion to God where the reign of sin and death is at work and sometimes even works out of our own lives. From there, I mean, I could, I could spend some time talking about how, man, if we would just, if we would just see the love of God and the gratitude that would, that would, that would arise out of seeing the love of God, that we might develop more of a distaste from sin. I, I, for sin, I, I could talk about that, but, but, I, but I won't. I won't talk about that. So why remind us of all these imperfect and terribly sinful people? Well, I mean, just think about this. I could talk about how uh, we don't have to feel alone in our troubled past, right? Like in our struggling present and in our, in our future sufferings and anxieties. I mean, we look at these stories, we could talk about how each one of these lives in the scriptures that we talked about this morning surround us as a cloud of witnesses that can actually identify with how messy and jacked up some of our lives have been and can be. They can identify with how hard and how hurtful life can be. And we could talk about from there how all we have to do is just in faith, trust that Jesus is Lord and hold on to courage and get involved in Scripture and be surrounded by the community of God's people and live a, seek to live a transparent life that with nothing to prove and nothing to fear and nothing to lose and just trust that who we are is being transformed by the love of God through our challenges and we could find relief in our struggles and we have to learn, we could learn to forgive ourselves and then forgive others from the struggling past and the struggling present and the suffering of the future. We could talk a lot about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I'm not going to do that this morning either. So why remind us of all these imperfect and terribly sinful people? Well, it's simple. I wonder if we sometimes forget just how extraordinary the simplicity of this truth really is. It's so simple to hear what I want to share that it sometimes falls on deaf ears. Because we've heard it so many times. It's so simple what I want to share. That we sometimes fail to feel the eternal weight of glory this truth brings to our life right here, right now. So why remind us of all these imperfect and terribly simple people? Because I want to remind us that God loves sinners. Paul would write, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But before God proved his own love for us by Jesus dying for us, God proved his own love for us by Jesus living for us. Like Jesus was for sinners. He was for sinners. 
is probably why Paul felt compelled one day to write this piece in his letter to Timothy. When he said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Read this with me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hold on and read this with me. Of whom I am the worst. But, the disruptive conjunction, but, the very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him to receive eternal life. Jesus has always been for Sinners. This is how Mark, who is not John Mark, puts it in his gospel. Mark chapter 2, verse 16 through 18. This is what he says. He says, when the scribes, who were like the lawyers, right? When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Jesus spent so much time with sinners. <laughs> he spent like I he spent so much time with sinners that he was called one himself. He was also called then a slanderous label, which would be a friend of sinners. Here's what he says, Matthew. Matthew records this, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard. Sinner. A friend tax collectors, and sinners. And then Jesus does his mic drop moment, right? Yet wisdom is shown to be right by what it does. See, it's so simple. But the eternal weight of glory of this truth is extraordinary. It's so easy to forget. You know how you know you've forgotten? When you're hiding your sin from God. Because there's no reason to. That's how you know you've forgotten. You know how you know you've forgotten the eternal weight of glory of this truth? Is when you judge sinners. Ooh! That's how we know we've forgotten. See, as a friend of sinners, Jesus is found in the presence of liars, thieves, prostitutes, and those who don't believe, the rich, the poor, the powerless, and the divorced, the widow, the child, the religious elite, and the left out. That's who Jesus is with. Jesus is with the murderer, the immigrant, the racist, the unrepentant. By welcoming and embracing sinners as, as friends, Jesus reveals that contrary to what the religious leaders thought and taught, God is willing to welcome all into his presence, and he is unafraid to be found in theirs. See, I share all of this because I think it's helpful to remember that if Jesus wasn't only a friend of sinners back then, he still is. He still loves sinners. And he still wants to see all of us sinners made whole. 
He wants us whole more than we want to be whole. He wants us healed more than we want to be healed. He wants us forgiven more than we want to be forgiven. He wants all of this for us because He is for us. And He is for them. Because He wants all. See, He wants us delivered from the sin that wrecks our lives. And even while some of us may still be working through some of the wreckage, He wants us to know that His love is certain and unconditional and always looks like something. And you know what it looks like? Friendship with sinners. I don't know, and sometimes I think it's helpful to take a little time and remember that something so simple can change everything. And also, as friends of Jesus, we don't want to become like the religious folks back then who spent so much time talking about what God was against that they forgot what God was for. All people. So I invite you this morning. Take some time. We practice the presence of God. Now, I'd invite you to do two things in this time. One thing I'd invite you to do is sit with the Lord and confess the sin, the struggle, the angst, the anger that you hide from Him, trusting that He is your friend. I want you to do that if you can. And ask God for the strength to do it. That's number one. Number two, here's what I want you to do. Number two, don't forget number two. I'd like for you to think of the sinners in your life that you just have the hardest time with. I'd like for you to think of the people in your life that you can't stand. I'd like for you to think of the people in your life who may be celebrities. Human beings, people made in the image of God, people for which you hold angst and ill will in your heart toward. I'd like you to imagine, come on, stay with me. I'd like you to imagine Jesus is their friend too. And then I'm going to pray. And then what I'd like for you to do is to trust what Jesus says. To Luke and the disciples in the book of Luke. And I want you, as I stand here, just kind of doing what I do, right here, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see him with his arms open, welcoming you to the bread and the wine. Because it's his table, it's his deal. It's not the church's table, it's not your table, it's not my table, it's not the elders' table, it's Jesus' table. Because it's his table, none of us get to choose who gets to come. So Jesus has said all are welcome. I want you to see Jesus standing right here. I want you to see him welcoming you to this table. And I want you to see him welcoming the people that you can't stand to this table. And then here's the hard part of the message. If you can't picture Jesus welcoming the people you can't stand to the table, you might want to just stay still. Figure out how to get on your feet. Come. Come to the table. Because Jesus welcomes you and everyone here.
No exceptions. No exceptions. Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this moment the bread of life we need to sustain the life we've confessed. And Father, in that confession that you are Lord, we have confessed that there are things that we've hidden from you. There are sins, there are struggles. There are concerns that we have hidden from you. Some of us have thought you're too busy, too big for our concerns. Some of us have thought that you would condemn us for our sins. Some of us thought that we could just know that you know them and never actually have to say them to you. But yet as a good father, you have said so many times you want to hear our voices. Like a good father, you want us to come to you and talk with you and sit with you. Some of us find that hard to believe. Some of us find that hard to do, but that is what you want. So in your Holy Spirit, by your Spirit, would you convict us, inspire us, compel us to trust that and then to do that. Forgive us, Father, for the things that we hold inside that just wreck us with the death of a thousand cuts when you have forgiven us already and you would love us as we are and want to make us well. Father, forgive us when we don't forgive others, when we fail to extend the forgiveness we've received, when we fail to extend the hospitality, the welcome that we have received, simply because we may disagree with somebody or maybe because they hurt us or maybe because we think they see us lesser than. But Father, help us to rest in the fact that you see us as beautiful, as made in your image, as beloved. And help us to see Jesus, who spent so much time with people like us, and maybe whose circumstances and situations were harder that he saw something in them that was beyond their label, that he saw someone to eat with, someone to even laugh with, someone to maybe cry with. But he, we know that he saw someone to love. So God, I thank you for all the stories of Scripture, how honest you are about your depiction of humanity. I mean, I, I wouldn't have written it that way. Uh, we really live in a culture, Father, as you know, that, that romanticizes the heroes where all the stories always end well, but some of those stories don't end well. But your love carries them through. So, Father, transform us today. Lord Jesus, friend of sinners, transform us as saints as saints who even though we still struggle and we still sin, have been given a new identity as your beloved children and are always, always in your presence. So Lord, meet us at the table this morning. In the bread and in the cup is the body and the blood. Meet us. Father, open our hearts to meet you. Father, open our hearts to meet one another. For those of us who are holding ill will against another, open our hearts so that in the forgiveness and in the repentance that we lay before you for holding and harboring anger, that our enemies might one day become friends, which I know is what you've done for us.
So Father, help us to see that too. God, we love you. We thank you that you are faithful. We ask that the, the measure and the manifestation of your faithfulness would be revealed in the lives, in our lives, in the lives of those we love, and in the lives of those we struggle deeply to love, so that all may see that you are the God who knows each one of us best, loves each one of us most, and offers us a life of shalom with you beginning now and forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.